Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dennis Huber parks his car on the side of California's Corona Del Mar Freeway. He puts a leash on the family dog, a black lab named Sam, and steps outside. He tells the dog, find Denise. Sam seems to understand. He sniffs the ground, pulling at the leash. Dennis follows him wherever he goes. They walk for hours up and down the street. Eventually, the sun sets, marking another day with no answers. Dennis decides they'll have to come back tomorrow. No matter how many sunsets it takes, he'll keep searching. In every crowd, on every street, in every shop. He'll look for his missing daughter. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering the chilling tale of Denise Huber. In the summer of 1991, she went to a Morrissey concert with a friend, but she never returned home. Her disappearance tormented everyone who knew her until years later, a shocking discovery thawed this cold case out. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On Monday, June 3rd, 1991, the sun rises over Newport Beach, California, ringing in yet another hot summer day. For 52-year-old Dennis Huber, it's supposed to be an exciting morning. He recently quit his job as a mortgage banker to start his own lending business, and he plans on getting it started today. 
But something strikes him as off. A strange feeling tugs at the pit of his stomach, almost like the world has slightly tilted off its axis. He asks his wife, Ione, if she feels it too. She does. They chalk it up to nerves. Dennis must be anxious about his new business venture. He's taken a big risk. Anybody would be nervous quitting their job like that. But then, another thought creeps into the back of his mind. Something is telling him to check on Denise. Denise is Dennis and Ione's 23-year-old daughter. She's social and intelligent, with long brown hair and blue eyes. Between attending classes at the University of California, Irvine, and services at her family's Presbyterian church, she works part-time at a restaurant and a local department store. Dennis expects Denise to be in her bedroom, but when he knocks on her bedroom door, she doesn't answer. He goes inside to find her bed perfectly made. It's clear she didn't sleep in it the night before. Dennis frowns. It's not like Denise to stay out all night, especially not without saying something first. Dennis tells Ione. She agrees that it's out of character for Denise not to give them a heads up, but there's a first time for everything. Denise went to a Morrissey concert with her friend Rob the night before. She probably spent the night at a friend's apartment or even pulled over to take a nap on the side of the road. Either way, she should be home soon. So the Hubers carry on as usual. Ione goes to work while Dennis prepares the paperwork for his brand new business. But as the hours tick by, Dennis grows more concerned. Denise doesn't return and she doesn't call. By the time Ione gets home that afternoon, Dennis is anxious. He can't shake the feeling that something is wrong and they need to find their daughter. They call one of Denise's closest friends, Tammy Brown. The pair met in college two years prior. Since then, they spent a lot of time together, and Denise often stayed the night at Tammy's house. The Hubers hope the girls are together now. But Tammy says she hasn't seen Denise. The Hubers' hearts sink. But there's another person they can try. 24-year-old Rob Calvert the friend who went to the Morrissey concert with Denise the night before. When he answers the phone, Rob tells the Hubers that after the show, he and Denise met a mutual friend at a cantina in Long Beach. They left there around 1.30 a.m. Denise dropped Rob off at his place shortly after 2 a.m. and said she was driving straight home. He hasn't heard from her since. The Hubers feel the world drop out from under them. Denise should have gotten home safely a long time ago. They run through a list of people who might know where she is. Their son, Jeff, hasn't heard from her. Neither have any of her friends. Now they're getting desperate. So they call some local police stations and hospitals. Denise is not in anybody's records. All the Hubers know is that Denise left Rob's house at 2 a.m. the night before. Something must have happened to her while she was driving home. So, with his heart racing, Dennis rushes out of the house to retrace his daughter's steps. Dennis thinks Denise would have taken the Pacific Coast Highway. It's the most direct way home. 
He follows that road, but doesn't see her car anywhere. When Denise's friend Tammy hears this, she suggests that Denise could have taken the Corona Del Mar freeway instead. It's a longer, more roundabout drive, but Tammy and Denise have had conversations about it before. They both think that out of the two highways, it's less likely to be patrolled by police. If you're planning to speed, it's better to take the freeway. Tammy feels certain Denise would have gone that way, especially late at night. So Tammy buckles up and makes her way to Rob's house. From there, she plots her route along the Corona Del Mar freeway and drives. She goes slow, scanning the horizon for any sign of her missing friend. After about 20 minutes, Tammy turns on her blinker and moves to the left, the direction Denise would have gone. As she nears the exit, she catches something in her periphery. It's exactly what Tammy's looking for. But it's also the last thing she wanted to see. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Searching on the Corona Del Mar freeway, Tammy spots a silver-blue Honda Accord abandoned on the right side shoulder. Its lights are off. Its windows are slightly down. It's Denise's car. Tammy's body reacts before her mind does. As she puts it, my stomach turned inside out and I had this awful, dropping, sinking feeling. Tammy fights back tears as she swerves across the highway. But she's in the left lane and traffic keeps her from getting over in time. She takes the next exit and makes a snap decision. She spots a payphone at a liquor store. She gets out of the car, her legs trembling beneath her, and picks up the phone. Ione Huber answers. Eyes clouded with tears, Tammy says, I found her car. She tells the Hubers where to go, and they say they'll be there soon. Tammy hangs up and gets back in her car. She circles back onto the freeway, this time sticking in the right lane. The Honda appears in her headlights, and she pulls up behind it. That's when she notices. The back right tire is flat. Tammy gets out and approaches the vehicle. She looks in the window, and even though it's dark, she can tell Denise isn't inside. The Honda is abandoned. Tammy has a terrible feeling that this isn't just Denise's car. This is a crime scene. She decides not to touch anything and returns to her own vehicle. As she sits down, the emotion overwhelms her. She drives away, alone. Just as Tammy leaves... Dennis and Ione Huber pull up behind their daughter's car. They approach, afraid of what they'll find. Dennis tries the driver's side door. It's unlocked. He gets inside and sees the battery is dead and the keys aren't in the ignition. 
He also notices Denise's pantyhose balled up in the passenger seat. She often removed her stockings to drive more comfortably, so this isn't that odd. What is strange is that they're the only thing in the car. Her purse isn't even there. Dennis and Ione don't have a spare key, so they leave the car on the freeway while they rush home and file a missing person report. Police get to Denise's car around 1 a.m. that same night. They take pictures and beg her stockings for evidence. They notice black marks on the road leading to the vehicle's flat tire. It looks like the tire blew out on its own and she pulled over to deal with it. The officers conduct a thorough search of the area. For two hours, they check along the road, down embankments and inside dark alleys, looking for any sign of Denise. They notice emergency phones located on the freeway a short walk away from Denise's car in either direction. She wouldn't have had to make it far to call for help. So she must not have made it far. They bring a police dog to trace her scent. The dog sniffs the stockings and his ears perk up. He walks along the shoulder in front of the car for 75 yards before stopping. Denise's trail ends there. Whether by choice or by force, it seems Denise got into somebody else's car. Given that she's been missing for a full night, Denise has probably been kidnapped. The police towed Denise's car in for the night. By the time the sun rises on Tuesday, June 4th, they've begun interviewing witnesses. They speak with Tammy, who details how she found the car. They talk to Denise's friend Jason, who gave her the tickets to the Morrissey concert. And they speak with Rob Calvert, who tells the police the exact same story he told the Hubers. Denise dropped him off at home around 2 a.m., then said she was going to drive straight home. The police press Rob for more details, and eventually, he admits he has a crush on Denise. To the police, his unrequited love could be a motive. Since Rob was the last one to see her alive, he becomes their main suspect. However, they spend some time looking into him, and they can't find any evidence linking him to Denise's disappearance. Plus, the Hubers, Tammy, and Jason all vouch for him. Everyone who knows him trusts he's not involved. For these reasons and more, the police turn their focus elsewhere. Their primary theory is that a random passerby saw her on the side of the road and picked her up. This explanation seems to make the most sense, but it doesn't give the police much to work with. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people drive on the Corona Del Mar freeway every night. Finding the person who took Denise would be like finding a needle in a haystack. But they have to try. They start in the area where she disappeared. They organize two large-scale volunteer searches and scour several blocks next to the freeway. At one point, Dennis takes the family dog, Sam, out searching too. They walk up and down the road for hours on end, praying for some sign of Denise. But ultimately, neither Dennis nor the volunteers find anything. For the police, it's back to square one. While they try to figure out what to do next, word of Denise's disappearance reaches the press. By Wednesday, only two days after she vanished, 
reporters arrive at the Huber's house. Dennis and Ioni are racked with grief and worry, but the arrival of the press gives them some hope. It means they have a microphone, a way to raise awareness about their daughter. They tell reporters all about Denise and beg the public to help them find her. The next day, Dennis offers a $5,000 reward to anyone who provides information leading to Denise's discovery. Members of their church and the public donate, bumping the reward to $10,000 total. Everyone wants to find Denise. The police are no different. They make a public plea for any witnesses who might have seen Denise on the night of her disappearance. They get several tips, but all lead to dead ends. They know they're going to have to do something different if they want answers, so they come up with a plan. They're going to figure out exactly who frequents the Corona Del Mar freeway and talk to every single one of them. Two officers are stationed on the Corona Del Mar freeway. They write down every license plate number they see and come away with a list of hundreds of vehicles. They systematically contact the drivers, asking if they saw anything on the night Denise disappeared. Several people say they saw her car sitting on the side of the road with the hazard lights blinking. This explains why her battery died before anyone found her car. A newspaper delivery woman named Cynthia Brown saw the Honda sitting on the side of the road as early as 2.25 a.m., This gives the police a tight timeline and supports the idea that Denise was taken from the road soon after her tire popped. It's a helpful piece of information, but it can only take authorities so far. Because while plenty of people saw Denise's car, no one actually saw her. After two more weeks of dead ends, Denise's story garners national attention. On the week of June 16th, America's Most Wanted airs a special segment about her. The show prompts two dozen people to give tips to the police, thinking they've seen Denise somewhere in the U.S. Law enforcement spends weeks looking into these tips, but yet again, none of them pan out. The 4th of July marks a full month since Denise went missing. The Hubers are desperate to find their daughter, and they think of one final thing they can try. They commission a banner that's 30 feet long and 6 feet tall. It shows a photo of their daughter next to the words, Have you seen Denise Huber? It lists the location of her car and the local police department's phone number. The Hubers get permission from the owner of a nearby apartment complex to hang the banner on the roof, right beside where Denise's car was found. The banner hangs above the freeway as a symbol of hope. With Denise's smiling face looking over them, all of Orange County starts to feel like she's their daughter, too. Thousands drive past, hoping the banner will help. But it never does. As time passes, the situation only gets worse. Tips dry up, and Denise's family and friends struggle to cope. While the police have stopped investigating them, Jason and Rob are still looked at with suspicion. Even as they mourn the loss of their friend, they can't shake the feeling that strangers are staring at them, 
thinking they might be responsible. Denise's younger brother, Jeff, believes his sister is dead and decides he'll be overjoyed if he finds out he's wrong. He grieves her loss, but makes the active choice to return to life as normal. This isn't so easy for Dennis and Ione. They choose to believe she's still out there and they'll find her again. They pray every day for her safe return, but they pay a steep price for this hope. Neither one of them can find the mental capacity to get back to work. They print thousands of pamphlets with Denise's photo and spend much of their time passing them out. They live off Dennis's savings, and he never actually opens the business he'd been so excited to start. Three years pass, and Dennis and Ione are still tortured. Everything reminds them of their daughter. When they see the ocean, they think about how much she loved dolphins. When they hear a song, they think about how much she loved music. When they see her friends, they think about how much she loved them. It's all too much for them to take. They decide they can't live in Newport Beach anymore and plan to move back to their home state of North Dakota. They pack their belongings, say goodbye to their friends, and ask their church to keep praying for their daughter. They're ready to leave Orange County for good. Then, in mid-July 1994, while Dennis is out getting supplies for the move, Ione sees three uniformed officers arrive on her doorstep. She can tell by their body language that they don't have good news. What she doesn't know is they have a story to tell. A discovery has been made in Prescott, Arizona, a small town north of Phoenix, and it involves a shocking twist that nobody could have seen coming. It all starts at a flea market. Jack and Elaine Court are a couple in their late 40s. They regularly sell paint at the Prescott Valley Flea Market. They've pretty much got a monopoly on their particular products. But one day in June 1994, a competitor shows up. He's tall with dark hair, a thick beard, and large glasses. Elaine introduces herself. The man smiles and says his name is John Famolaro. He seems pleasant enough. He tells them he just moved to Prescott from California six months prior. He opened up a painting business, but it wasn't doing as well as he'd hoped, so he came to the flea market to sell some of his surplus supplies. He asks if she'd be interested in any. Elaine and Jack offer to buy some of Famolaro's colorant. On July 9th, they follow Famolaro to his home in Prescott. As soon as they pull into his driveway, they're struck by the other vehicle sitting outside his house. It's a large rental moving truck with the Ryder logo printed on the side. Tall grass winds its way around the wheels and stacks of paint cans litter the ground. An extension cord reaches into the back, despite a padlock keeping the truck shut. It's an odd thing to see in the middle of a suburban neighborhood. Famolaro has the couple follow him to the backyard, where they see dozens more cans cluttered around. They grab the colorants and pay Famolaro his fee, but all the while, they can't get the rider truck out of their minds. 
Famalaro told them he moved to town six months earlier. If he's kept the truck there for that long, it would cost him a fortune. Unless, of course, he stole it. The courts write down the truck's license plate and serial numbers, then they pass the information on to law enforcement. Police run the plates. The truck is definitely stolen. And based on the extension cord trailing out the back and the buckets and cans strewn about the yard, they believe Famalaro is using it as a mobile drug lab. The police get a search warrant for the stolen truck, and at 1.15 p.m. on July 13th, the Prescott Area Narcotics Team arrives on the scene. They knock on Famalero's door, but he doesn't answer. Detective Mike Garcia, leader of the team, goes ahead with the search. He has a locksmith unlock the rear door of the truck. It slides open to reveal a large, horizontal, white freezer. It's plugged into the extension cord. A padlock is attached to the front, and duct tape runs along its edges, sealing it shut. Detective Garcia sends the locksmith into the truck. The Famalaro has drugs, they're likely in the freezer. The lock falls off, and Detective Garcia pulls off the tape. The freezer contains something large, covered in black plastic bags. He notices a pungent odor and looks in to see a pool of blood frozen on the freezer's floor. His first thought is that it's probably venison. Plenty of hunters live in the area, and they tend to freeze excess meat. But he needs to be sure. He pulls on the plastic. As it peels away, it reveals something truly mortifying. Detective Garcia pulls back the plastic bags to find a pale, frost-covered human arm. He takes a step back. The potential drug bust just got much more serious. Homicide detectives soon arrive to examine the body. The victim is a young woman with long brown hair, frozen solid. She's curled up, her knees by her chest. It's clear she's been positioned this way, which is odd because there's plenty of room in the freezer to have laid her out flat. She's completely nude, and her hands have been handcuffed behind her back. Despite her frigid temperature, her body shows slight signs of decay. There's no blood splatter on the sides of the freezer, implying the victim was killed elsewhere. The blood in the bottom must have leaked out before the body could freeze. White plastic bags cover her head. Later, the medical examiner, Dr. Ann Buckholtz, thaws her body and removes those bags. The following description is graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Buckholtz discovers the victim's eyes and lips have been taped over. She's been sexually assaulted, rags have been stuffed inside her mouth, and her head has been beaten with some kind of weapon. The victim has been struck at least 31 times, and her skull is so badly fractured, brain matter leaks through the cracks. It's shocking. 
and it's only the beginning. Detectives enter Famalaro's home. It's large, but it's filled with clutter. Magazines, newspapers, paint supplies, books. It seems Famalaro is a hoarder. They've got a lot to sort through, so investigators split into two teams. One moves to the basement, and the other goes upstairs. The basement team descends into a dark room, only to discover a massive pit. Famalaro has broken through the foundations of his own home and dug six feet below. Detectives know this is a bad sign. They may be dealing with a serial killer. They bring in a canine team to see if they can sniff out any bodies. Luckily, the dogs find nothing. The pit is empty. Meanwhile, the upstairs team realizes Famalaro's hoarding will work to their benefit. He's held on to the personal effects of 11 different women. These items range from articles of clothing to birth certificates, credit cards, and driver's licenses. Again, the investigators see this as a sign that they've stumbled across a serial killer. The evidence only grows when they find two cardboard boxes labeled Christmas, which contain the exact opposite of Christmas cheer. One holds duct tape, an empty handcuff box, a blood-stained cloth, and a blood-stained nail puller, a foot-long metal tool with a sharp edge. The other holds several more bloodied items, including a knapsack, a black plastic bag, and a claw hammer. The medical examiner later examines the nail puller and the claw hammer. Based on the wound patterns in the blood, Dr. Buckholtz confirms these items were the weapons used to bludgeon the frozen woman to death. Investigators know they need to find Famalaro and fast. But he comes to them first. John Famalaro arrives home at 5.30 p.m. while the officers are still there. He gets out of his car and approaches Deputy Chris Sorensen. He calmly asks the officer what's going on. The deputy responds, We're here recovering a stolen rider rental truck. Famalaro replies, I just haven't been able to return it yet. Deputy Sorensen says they'll be taking the truck and tells Famalaro he's under arrest. To the deputy's surprise, Famalaro complies. It's as if Famalaro is acting like there's nothing wrong at all, even though they both know police have found the body he's been keeping on ice. Officers take Famalaro to the station where they attempt to interview him. He provides basic information like his name and address, but as soon as they mention the freezer, Famalaro freezes up. He stops talking and requests a lawyer. The police aren't surprised he won't say anything more, but it does leave them with plenty of work to do. They compile a list of all the women whose ID cards Famalaro had in his possession. One by one, they contact them. A few barely knew Famalaro and had no idea how he got his hands on their belongings. Others knew him well, and had horrific stories to tell. Darlene Miller was Famalaro's ex-girlfriend. 
She told police she'd broken up with Famolaro after he brought her to New York City, stripped her naked in their hotel room, then handcuffed her to the window. Another one of his ex-girlfriends, Kate Colby, had been at his house when she had to leave for work. Rather than let her go, Famolaro pushed her to the bed, pinned her down, and put handcuffs on her wrists. He only released her when she threatened to go to the police. Finally, a sex worker from Phoenix said Famolaro had picked her up for her services, but then driven her out into the middle of nowhere. When he stopped the vehicle, she left her purse behind and fled on foot. He chased after her, but she managed to get away alive. Eventually, police go through the entire list. Ten of the eleven women are still alive, albeit with frightening stories to tell. There's only one name unaccounted for. It appears on several items near the murder weapons, and it's the only one that's on the missing persons registry. That name is Denise Huber. With a potential identity for their frozen victim, they pull fingerprints from the body. They compare the right thumbprint to the one on Denise Huber's driver's license, and it's a perfect match. Three years after she went missing, Denise Huber is found. This is the story Newport Beach police officers tell Ione Huber on July 16, 1994. Ione breaks down in tears. She was holding out hope that she would see her daughter again, but now that dream is impossible. All that's left is the nightmarish reality that her daughter has been stolen from this world. When Dennis returns, his wife tells him the news. He's devastated. As he later puts it, I have never felt worse in my life, I don't think. It's indescribable. It's the worst thing that can happen to you. The Hubers and their friends mourn. When the story makes it to the papers a few days later, the entirety of Orange County mourns with them. They take down the banner that had been up for nearly three years. Denise's smiling face can no longer be seen above the highway. But while the banner is no longer asking for information, there are still some questions that need to be answered. Like, how exactly did Denise end up in Famolaro's freezer 370 miles east of where she disappeared. Through a series of interviews and audits, police discover that Famolaro lived in Orange County at the time of Denise's disappearance. He also rented a warehouse on Verdugo Drive in Laguna Hills, California. It doubled as Famolaro's living space and is only a short drive from where Denise was taken. Police acquire a search warrant for the warehouse and spray the floor and walls with luminol, a chemical that makes blood glow under a UV light. When they shine their lights, the walls look like a glow-in-the-dark Jackson Pollock painting. Blood is everywhere. They take samples and test the DNA. The blood is a match for two people, Joseph Famolaro and Denise Huber. If there had been any room for doubt, it's now gone. Famolaro killed Denise in this warehouse and held onto her body for three years. 
By the time Famalaro goes on trial on May 8, 1997, police and prosecutors know what happened on the night Denise disappeared. Once again, the following description is graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Around 2.10 a.m. on July 3rd, 1991, Denise Huber's tire pops as she's driving home from a night out. Tired and frustrated, she turns on her hazards and decides to walk for help. John Famolaro happens to be driving by. He sees her car, then he sees her. Denise only makes it 75 yards away from her car before Famolaro pulls over beside her. Before she can even tell what's happening, he's on top of her. He strikes her in the head, either with a claw hammer or the nail puller. This blow disorients her and perhaps even knocks her unconscious. Famolaro drags her to his car, blindfolds her with duct tape, and handcuffs her wrists behind her back. He manages to do all of this on the side of a busy freeway without anybody noticing or intervening. It all happens incredibly quickly. In less than a minute, Famolaro is heading towards his warehouse. He gets there shortly before 3 a.m. He drags Denise inside and sexually assaults her. Denise fights back and manages to injure him. His blood mixes with hers on the ground, but the injuries he sustains aren't enough to stop him. Angered and vicious, Famolaro wraps three plastic bags over Denise's head. Using the claw hammer and the nail puller, he strikes Denise's skull at least 31 times. At some point during this barrage, Denise dies. Famolaro cleans up the blood, but his hoarding tendencies get the better of him. He doesn't want to dispose of Denise's body. He wants to keep her. That same day, he purchases an upright freezer and brings it back to the warehouse. It's smaller than the one that's later found in the truck. He has to fold Denise up into the fetal position to fit her inside. He eventually moves out of the warehouse, but he takes Denise and the freezer with him. He rents a storage unit and demands the owner provide 24-hour electricity. He places the freezer inside and keeps Denise there for at least two years. When he moves to Arizona, he brings Denise with him. He buys a larger chest-type freezer and transfers her to it. Then he pays some teenagers to drive the stolen truck with the freezer inside from California all the way to Prescott, Arizona. He instructs them to stop every two hours and plug the freezer in to ensure it stays frozen. He tells them they're transporting elk meat. They believe him. When he finally gets to his new home, he realizes he can't keep Denise frozen forever. He digs a hole in his basement with the intention of burying her body and the evidence inside, but he never has a chance to do it. His inability to get rid of anything, even a stolen rental truck, gets him caught. After three years of terror, Denise Huber's fate is revealed, and her story finally comes to a close. With her tragic tale revealed, the courts find John Joseph Famolaro guilty of the murder of Denise Huber. The judge sentences Famolaro to death. 
As of this recording, John Famolaro remains on death row in California. His execution hasn't been scheduled and likely never will be. Even though California allows for a death sentence, state courts have ruled lethal injection cruel and inhumane. As such, California has no legal method of performing an execution. Still, Dennis and Ione Huber take solace in the fact that Famolaro is behind bars. They attribute the discovery of Denise's body to a divine miracle. And even though it led to the worst moments of their life, they're happy they have answers. Still, the pain of their loss will never truly heal. As Dennis said during Famolaro's sentencing trial, Denise wasn't his only victim. Quote, some of us are still walking around. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the chilling tale of Denise Huber, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cold Storage by Don Lassiter extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Giles Hofseth edited by Karis Allen and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, sound designed by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>